In um, 2010, uh, when I was, uh, got to go to Israel, and the, um, we were there during their, uh, totally unaware, we were there during their Memorial Day um, in Israel, and, and they do something really unique and extraordinary uh, for their Memorial Day. They do it for about, for two different events uh, during the year, but for one minute um, in Israel, um, on Memorial Day, they have a scheduled minute, and at that minute, everything comes to a halt. Everyone comes to a halt. Um, I mean, like busy highways, when that minute is coming, when they know that minute is coming, you will start seeing brake lights, brake lights, brake lights, and then on a busy highway, everything stops. You put your car in park, open up your door, and you get out and you stand by your car for one minute. If you're in a mall or, or, or shopping in huge crowds of people, and that minute hits, everyone stops moving. Um, it's, it's surreal, even a little creepy. It has that like, did time just stop and no one warned me that, because no one's talking, no one's moving, no one's anything. Um, and so even though we, you know, it's, it's kind of an intriguing thing for churches, we, our focus is Christ and him crucified, to engage with national type holidays and events like Memorial Day. Um, but because we are a faith firmly rooted in the concept of gratefulness, I mean, it makes sense that we as a gathering here at, you know, the kind of Thanksgiving dinner that Sunday morning service kind of is, um, that we would remember things and, and, and engage with stuff like this, not as a replacement for the gospel in any way, but just because we can, and we're free to do so, and we are grateful. So what I'm going to ask is that everyone stand, and we will stand in silence for one minute in memory of the approximately 1.1 million Americans who have died in war. And uh, just thanking God uh, for his provision of one another, including for things like this. Um, and then at the end of the minute, I'll point and we'll watch a little video. If you've got a young kid, I don't see any more young kids, little kids. This video is not, it's not gross or, or anything like that, but it's pretty intense. So if you've got a young kid who's sensitive to that kind of stuff, you just might, might know that. It's, it's, I don't think it'll be a problem for anyone I'm seeing, but you never know. So um, we will take a minute and, uh, and just you pray, be grateful. Um, for these people.
an odd thing to honor those who died in defense of our country, in defense of us, in wars far away. The imagination plays a trick. We see these soldiers in our mind as old and wise. We see them as something like the founding fathers, grave and gray-haired. But most of them were boys when they died, and they gave up two lives, the one they were living and the one they would have lived. When they died, they gave up their chance to be husbands and fathers and grandfathers. They gave up their chance to be revered old men. They gave up everything for our country, for us. We owe them a debt we can never repay. All we can do is remember them, what they did, and why they had to be brave for us. So again, for those who have served, and we have many here, thank you that you have served and are willing to do so, and, um, and we're grateful to God for those who have done so in the past and even died for the freedoms we get to enjoy, and so it just seems appropriate. <clears throat> All right. Um, speaking of, reading from John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so... I would have told you, I say that wrong every time, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and still you don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And who else, and, or else believe an account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, this question that Thomas asks, where are you going, we don't know the way, etc., is really Peter's question. But Peter doesn't ask it um, this time. P Peter asked it back in 1336. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. So Thomas asks this time about that. Jesus answers that he is the way and the truth and the life. This is another of Jesus's I am phrases. It's a statement of connecting himself to the name Yahweh. I am. This isn't some self-proclaiming thing. He's not declaring himself to be young or rich or healthy or anything like that, like in some delusional world that if we just speak something, it makes it true. He is stating something that is already true. I am is who he is. And so he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
Once again, when we see this all through the book of John, this is a big deal, the I am phrases. This is not a claim to merely even deity. He's not something special, though he is, but he is true and ultimate divinity. He doesn't just have power over life. He is life. There was a, an interesting podcast I was listening to this weekend. I'm always, uh, this week, I'm always interested in science podcasts, especially ones about the brain. Um, and, and the scientific community, the secular scientific community, not the scientific community, the secular scientific community is really struggling with this. Um, it's really, in fact, uh, I would say uh, there are times when I admit it's like a comedy routine is how it comes across. The level of denial that is necessary for them to camp where they have camped, where there is nothing but the material. There is only the brain. There's no mind. There's no soul. And so what they're always studying and trying to figure out is how on earth does a brain create a mind? That doesn't seem possible to them. And to hear them spend hours and hours trying to explain something, and really, they are just, they're just stuck. There actually was one recently of a man who's, who, um, I think he recently died, but one of the great brain researchers, and he said in this podcast, not, not this one, a different one, he said in the podcast, we now know for sure that all there is is the brain. We now know that for sure. For years, we thought there was a mind, there was an, a non-physical aspect to human beings, that there was a psyche, there was a soul, and now we know for sure all there is is the brain. The next question the podcast person asks is, well, what's the next great area of research? And the scientist who just said that says, consciousness is the great area of research because no one has any idea how a brain creates the sense of consciousness. Like, but you, but you know for sure there's no such thing as anything but the brain, and yet you're also admitting in the next breath, we have no idea where this comes from. Hearing on a TED series of TED Talks, people try to explain where the mind, the consciousness comes from and how that works with the brain. And they keep coming back to this. Well, I don't even buy into the God of the gaps mentality that we can't explain it so it must be God, that way of doing science. I don't buy into that. And yet they're getting there now instead of us getting there. It's like, well, we don't know. There must be some cool thing that the brain does. Or there could be something that transcends the mere physical. That's also an option. No, no, just the brain, but we don't understand how the brain does this. It doesn't seem possible. All right, you have fun with that. Stick with that as long as you want. How does it happen? There are things, there, there's now, literally was a guy saying, maybe we just need to come to the conclusion that consciousness is an, is an absolute, that because there is, a, there is such a thing as, as existence, therefore consciousness exists. Maybe we just need to see it's like, it's like matter, it's like mass, it's like gravity. Because anything exists, this exists. I'm like, you want to go, right. wonder where that, where that came from. It just exists. It just does. I guess you just take that on faith. Colossians 1, 20, 12, Colossians 1, 12 through 17 says this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the life. He is not the, just the creator of life. He's not just the sustainer of life. He is life. He is life itself. He is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the good shepherd. He is the gate. He is the resurrection 
and the life. These, is, these are the I am statements we've built up to so far. And once again, Jesus takes a religious, philosophical, or even just flat physical concept and says, no, no, that's me. Thomas says, we don't know which way you're going. We don't know where you're going. Since we don't know the destination, how can we possibly know the way? And Jesus says, no, no, I am the way. I, I am the way. See, once again, you're looking for something outside of me, and I'm telling you, it's, it's me. We don't, we don't know where you're going, so we don't know the way. Of course you know the way. I am the way. Of course you know the way. He is all of these things. Let's visit this word way for a second. This, is, this becomes very important to early Christianity, this word way. Um, John Redford Sr. gave us one of the powerful references that Jesus uses with the idea of way, the wide way, the narrow way. And, and, and we have to choose what way we're going to follow. For those of you who are, are younger in the room, uh, this is a good axiom. It's a statement of truth that you can hold on to is this right here, okay? Your destination is determined by your direction, not your intention. So those of you who are like under like 20, need to make note of that, or like 25 or maybe under 50, Whatever age, it doesn't matter, I guess, really. This truth is set out. Those of, us have, those, those of us who are older than a certain age have learned that the hard way. So we're just telling you in advance, like, if your intention is to lose weight, but, you're, but you're, the, the way you go is by eating a lot of donuts, your destination will not be skinny. No matter what your intention is. So if, if I go up to I-20, and I decide I'm going to go to Shreveport, and I take the left... The fact that I decided to go to Shreveport is irrelevant if I go left because I will end up in Dallas. No matter what my intentions are, my direction is going to determine where I wrap up. Jesus is saying for, for us who are of his followers, I, I am the destination and I am the direction. I am the way. This is who I am. This is what I This is a yet another thing that he is. Isaiah 53 or 35, 8 says, a way shall be there. A highway in the ESV. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, and it shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Follow Jesus, do it his way, walk this way, follow the path, do it this way. This, is, this language is so significant all through it. So one of the things, I'm just going to take a second and just kind of um, kind of slowly kind of roll this out over the next few weeks just so you're aware of this. Um, starting in a few weeks, John uh, Redfern is going to be starting his sabbatical, which means he's going to be gone for a few weeks. So I'm giving you, I'm giving you a heads up so that you don't panic um, or, or, or get all, all nervous. Some people do train, change better than other people. But what this means is one of the things that we think is the way of doing things is rest, is the reminder that, that we need to learn to rest in who God is and not only in our own performance, and not only in our own ability to behave, and, and even for church. So part of the purpose of a sabbatical for church staff is to rest, is to get away and rest. I did it uh, now coming up on two years ago, and, uh, and it's, so, so you'll know, like, it's, it's not an extended vacation. It's, it's incredibly uncomfortable, um, and, and it's a good thing. I'm not being negative about it, but it's very uncomfortable. Um, John has been in low-level panic mode for about as long as he's going to be gone. So it's it's, um, it's, it's uncomfortable to go do this and to take this time and, and to focus in on other things. But honestly, as you've heard me teach on rest before, part of the purpose of a church staff sabbatical is to give you a break from us, um, is to remind all of us what we need is God to provide 
through one another in each other's lives, and there's no one person who's the only person who can do that for us or lead us in that. That's, that's not a correct understanding. And so it's, it's both are positive. I'm a big fan of it. I think in whatever career you're a part of, you should start in, engaging and figuring out how to engage in a sabbatical in your career path. The fact that the church is, that this church is generous enough, not only, most churches have it written up like in bylaws and things like that and staff handbooks, but they don't actually do it. Um, this is a church that the leadership board um, really kind of demands an explanation if you don't take your sabbatical on time, um, which, is, which is healthy and right. It's a, it's a good thing. So just, just be aware of that. We have great people who could step in and help lead us, who we can learn from, and that's part of the, prob- part, part of the process of going through this. This is p- because we think this is the way that Jesus has created for us, is a way that involves rest and breaks um, and encouragement and times to, to recharge and restore We'll talk more about that. Um, okay, um, now back to, um, uh, I'm gonna look now in Acts to reference this word, the way. The, how, this, how important this became to the church, to the early church. Acts 9, Acts 19, Acts 24, all reference this, and 24, 14 says this, but this I confess to you, uh, that according to the way, which they call a sect, meaning a break off from Judaism, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, and there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Here we see that the early Christians were called the way, which that makes sense. Remember, we talked about Jesus as a rabbi, Jesus as the leader of a religious school, that his followers followed the, his way of doing things. He had a way of believing and a way of thinking and a way of praying and a way of, and so much of what we see in the New Testament is his disciples learning his way. Well, you teach us how to pray, okay? Here's the way, here's a model of prayer. Well, how should we treat children? Here's how you should treat children. How should we treat one another? Here's how you should treat one another. He has just in John 13 and 14 shown us that a big part of his way is loving one another, Right? So as they're, they're the school of Jesus, Jesus the Christ, the Nazarene, what does that mean? Again, in Acts eleven twenty six, we get to see this. Listen to this. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Christian wasn't our first name. It means little Christ. It's probably a mocking term. Like you, you people think you're a bunch of little messiahs. Is that it? That's what you think? You think you're a bunch of little Christs? Um, and so Christians were like, oh, if only. We'll take that name. That'd be awesome. Like, what a great challenge that's constantly laid before us. Are you a Christian? Wow. I don't know if I'm willing to take up that name at all. Am I a little Christ? Man, that's my, I seek that. I strive for that. I, I am that in his, he proclaims me the light of the world like he is the light of the world. Yes. So in the sense that he has proclaimed that I am a little version of him, Yes. Do I think I live that out well? No. No, not normally. But Christians, sure, we'll go with that. We'll, we will accept it. Um, we were called followers of the way for a long time. Belief is not magical. Belief isn't the magic of this. We can believe in something that's false or wrong or error or dangerous or even deadly. What we believe in, who we believe in. Remember in the book of John, we have this all through, this, this, this uh, verb, faith. What do we faith in? 
So Jesus is saying to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. From now on, you do know him, and I have seen him. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Now, one of the first things that strikes me in this little section, another couple of verses, Judas, not Iscariot, is going to speak. Um, So in just a few verses, we have Thomas ask a question or make a statement. We have Philip make a statement. And we're going to have Judas make a statement. What is, what is, is there anything else that stands out to you? Is there anything glaring to you that's, that's strange about that? I'm curious where Peter is. Peter is the designated question asker of these 12, right? Of these guys. There's only 11 of them now in the room. Peter's job is to ask questions. That's what he does. He makes statements. He asks questions. I mean, when's the last time you saw Philip speak? You've never heard Judas, Judas, not Iscariot, ask a question before, make a statement before. Philip doesn't talk a lot. Thomas does some, but not a ton. Where's Peter? Don't you think? So you imagine in this room, these 11 guys sitting around this table, and they're in the middle of Passover, and Jesus just a few minutes ago told Peter he was going to deny him three times before the sun comes up. I think that's why Peter's not speaking. I doubt if Peter's hearing a word that's being said. I think Peter is over there either angry or discouraged, or defiant, but he's stuck inside his own head. He's processing. Those of you internal processors out there, you understand this. He's sitting there going, what does he mean I'm going to three times? What? How possible would that happen? That's not going to happen. I'm not going to do that. I wouldn't do that. What are you thinking? He's wrong about this. I mean, you, you know he's stuck. In his, why would he say that? It's so embarrassing. If he's going to confront me, he should pull me aside and do it privately, not in front of all the other guys. You got to know that's what's going on in his head. I don't know that Peter's paying any attention at all. In this. So everybody's got to ask his questions for him, which is how I read this. Now, what is, what is and, and maybe there's a lot of tension in the room, by the way. They're all kind of going like, oh, Peter, in trouble again. Now, what is, Philip, what is Philip asking for here? Some people think Philip is asking kind of for a Moses experience here. He wants Jesus to, to hide them in the cleft of a rock while God the Father comes by or, or something like that. Maybe they, they want to see Almighty God. And, and I have a, an instinct because I know, because given my perspective, I know Philip is, is off base here. It's my instinct to kind of be negative about him, but also, really, I don't know that I should be. So as I've thought about it, what is Peter really asking for here? What evidence? To what degree is Jesus claiming ultimate divinity? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father? But remember, he's there to comfort them. It tells us this whole conversation is about him comforting them in this. That he wants to love them well all the way until the end. And it's kind of like Philip is saying, you know what would really comfort us? You know what would do it? No matter what's coming, Jesus, no matter what's coming next, this, this would comfort us forever. You know what? Just this one thing and we'd be settled forever. Show us the Father. That's, that's actually not an abnormal or weird or inappropriate thing for Philip to be seeking. I think I, think I get that. You've probably had those moments in your Christian life. Listen, just once and for all, reveal yourself in such a way that I can never deny it again, never doubt it again. Would you just do that one time? Just, just make it so that I never have to wonder. Um, now, as humans, of course, I think we can twist anything to make ourselves doubt no matter what we've experienced because we've all experienced pretty miraculous, amazing stuff. But I think that's the case. Remember, this is Philip, the one who, um, who came and said this, we have found the one Moses and the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
That was, that was way back in, in John 1. So Philip, Philip is a seeker. Philip is a searcher, it seems. Philip is looking for something. He's finally found the Messiah. But notice that way back in John 1, it was the Messiah was the son of Joseph. Not the son of God, the son of Joseph. So we finally found this Messiah that Moses and the prophets have written about. And now Philip is like, you know what would really just seal this? Now that we found the Messiah is that the Messiah would show us the Father. Maybe he's still trying to figure out what it even means that Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. So Jesus raises the stakes on Philip again. Philip says, show us the Father and that'll be good. Jesus says, I raise. Verse 9. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, it's not an I am statement because Jesus is not I am the Father. That, would, that wouldn't be an appropriate thing to say. But this, this, the interconnectedness, there's so much the same. If you know me, you know the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does these works. Now, I got I to just comment for a second. Today's a good day to comment on this, on Memorial Day. I'm a part of the 13th generation of Americans called Gen X. And there's a 14th generation and now 15th generation, the 14th generation, the millennials, the 15th generation, which don't really have a name yet. But the, um, uh, here's what's intriguing about the 13th and 14th, and so far the 15th generation is that we were the first, I was the first generation of Americans to not be conscripted. The 13th generation was the first generation to not be drafted into the military. And something that Paul and I have seen over the years, as some of you guys have experienced when you do discipleship with young men, is, is now, multiple, now a couple generations past this, and there's this deep loss of the concept of authority. Of what authority means. It's like you're speaking in a foreign language when you try to speak to millennials and the next generation down about authority, unless they've had someone teach that to them from childhood. But you realize all the rest of us were raised if we did not go into the military in a key developmental time of life. We were at least raised by men who did and who understood this concept of authority. Listen, authority is easy to abuse, as everyone has said throughout all of human history. Authority is easy to abuse, but if you don't understand the concept, the basic concept of authority, you will be lost trying to, man, trying to navigate life as a human without a good understanding of this. And we used to teach a group of young men. We would literally, we would literally sit down with them and say like, okay, so how does this work? How does this concept of authority work? So you've got, you've got a private, okay, lowest rank military, and a sergeant tells him to do push-ups. Now, listen, it's unreasonable. It's an inappropriate time. It makes no sense. I've told you about my friend, my best friend, who was a, a Navy SEAL who was work trying to make copies, got sent to make copies, and the sergeant stopped him and said, Hawthorne, I don't think that copy machine likes you very much. And he said, no, sir, I don't think it does. He said, Hawthorne, I think you need to do push-ups until that copy machine works again. Now, that's that's delusional. That's unreasonable. That doesn't make any sense. So what did my friend do? Push-ups. That's what he did because the sergeant has authority over him. He didn't ask him to do anything immoral. He didn't ask him to do anything sinful. He just told him to do push-ups. Is that unreasonable? Yes, that's really dumb. It doesn't make any difference. The authority said do push-ups and there's no higher authority canceling that instruction. 
So you do push-ups. Finally, a higher-ranking person came by and was like, Hawthorne, why are you doing push-ups by the copy machine? Well, Sergeant so-and-so told me to do push-ups until the copy machine worked. Oh, okay. Tell you what, why don't you stop doing push-ups, see if we can get the copy machine working. So what does he do? He stops. But to quit, only if that guy outranks the sergeant, right? If a corporal comes along and says, stop doing push-ups, my friend keeps doing push-ups because he does not outrank the, he doesn't get to belay the order of the sergeant. That's not how that works. You don't, you're not higher authority than the sergeant. But if, so a lieutenant comes along and says, stop doing push-ups, he stops. So what happens if a major comes along and says, do, do push-ups? You do push-ups. See, we're, we're not even, it's kind of like, you know, uh, hands in, in poker. Like people don't know the hands of poker anymore because not People don't even know the correct order of rank in the military anymore. Like, we don't even know them. So, so because this concept of authority is so shaky for us. Wait a minute, who is he to tell me to do push-ups? Your authority, that's who he is. And, and, and this is a vitally important concept. We can't wrap our brains around what it is to relate to other humans without it. Here's, here's our whole system is now based on autonomy in place of authority. There is no one who gets to tell me about me because I have personal autonomy. I am my only authority. And no one can have an authority above me. This is the, now the understanding of most people in the Western world. Autonomy is the only authority. I am the only authority over me. You can't tell me anything about me. I am my own authority. There is no such thing as an authority outside of me. That's where we are. This is a huge error. It's a mistake. This isn't how the universe works. You eventually run into an authority that's not interested in your autonomy. It may be gravity. That may be the authority that's not interested in your autonomy. Make whatever claims you want. There's all types of things that, that, that how this plays out. It is something that we're lacking. Here's what boggles my mind about this. This is Jesus Christ speaking, by whom, for whom, and through whom all things were created. That's Jesus Christ speaking. And what is Jesus Christ? How does he see this? He sees his power, his limitless, infinite power as an opportunity to submit to the Father. Autonomy? No one has autonomy like God. And yet God is the one who says, no, no, I look to the authority of someone else. Authority is not something to be bucked in the Christian world. Authority is something to be embraced because our rabbi's way is the way of authority. He doesn't even use his own words. He speaks the words of the Father. I am the only source for my own moral duties and obligations. That's what we think. And we're wrong. There is an external authoritative source for moral duties and obligations. It's not my body. It's not my choice. It's not my life. He is the life. That's not how this works. He is the authority. The power to defer. The authority to submit. The sovereignty to do the will of another is how Jesus engages with this. You talk about turning the worldly mindset on its head. This is why it's so hard for us to be Christians in the Western world. More and more, at first philosophically, eventually there'll be other prices to pay. But this is what's, this isn't just some, this is, it, in fact, it isn't a political concept. 
It is a philosophical, metaphysical concept of faith. Am I mine or am I his? Do I defer to my own autonomy only or do I defer to his authority primarily? That's, otherwise, the way, you need to take out the capital T and a capital W and make it my way. And that's your other option. This isn't a zen, some zen, weird concept. This isn't an emptying of self. It is a submission of the fullness of self. This, this blew me away reading this. It always blows me away when I consider that Jesus Christ, and I'm reminded that Jesus Christ is almighty, all-knowing, all-present God, the creator of heaven and earth, and what he does in his role on earth is submit to the Father out of love for his creation because he has the power to do so. Wow. He dwells in me. He remains. Jesus uses this word dwells. Dwells, remains, abides, is held, not changing. Um, this word abides. Um, I'm literally going to say like two sentences, and here's why. In a few weeks, Bob Livesay is going to be preaching from John 15. I have a funny feeling that we will spend a little time uh, remaining, abiding, and dwelling on the word abide in that section. So um, I'm going to. I'm going to move past for the sake of other stuff, but wow. The, the thought of God the Father abiding, God abiding with us as we abide in him, the Son abiding in the Father as the Son, as the Father abides in him, this word dwell is a phenomenal, fantastic concept. Okay, but Jesus is saying, you want comfort? Verse 11, you want comfort. Autonomy isn't the path, just, just so you'll know, um, I've always think this is so psychological, I just tell you, like always the thought when people would come to counseling, I don't ask anymore what your goals for counseling are because everybody has the same goal for counseling. It's to be happy. I mean everybody. So I stopped asking. Like I don't because happiness is like, okay, well, good, you'll be happy, and then you won't, and and then you will, and then you won't, and then you will. But then you won't. But later you will, but then later you won't. It's happiness. You, you, you trust in yourself for something? There's nothing wrong with happiness. Happiness is a wonderful gift that God gives us. But if you're trusting in happiness to provide meaning and purpose for your life, well, it won't. At least not long term. It will, then it won't. And then it will, and then it won't. <laughs> you to trust in yourself for meaningless and purpose in life? For direction? I mean, have you met you? I, that always, in my head, that always freaks me out a little bit when people talk about that. No, I trust in me. I quoted a, a musician, Ellie and I, um, Ellie and I watched certain TV shows together and discussed it, and and there was a musician, there's a Christian band coming out and doing a bunch of dance stuff. And one of the judges comes out, and Jen, Ellie and I are sitting there, look, uh, sitting there watching this, and the judge comes out and goes, you know what, I believe what you guys believe as a Christian dance group. And Ellie and I were like, well, that's cool. And he goes, but more than that, I believe in myself. And was like, oh my gosh, like, I, that's, you just want to write him a letter. Like, have, again, have you met you? I mean, have you had any experiences with you at all? More than God, you believe in yourself. This, this seems like a really foolish strategy. I just Anyway, you want comfort? Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Their fear was abandonment. You can tell he understands this. He understands what they're afraid of. They're afraid of being abandoned. They're afraid of being alone. His comforts are always about this. As Redford pointed, as Redford Senior pointed out last week, Jesus is going to feel this sense of abandonment. He isn't, he isn't cosmically abandoned. The Trinity was not broken on the cross. That's that's goofy. But did Jesus feel what 
what his forefather uh, down the road, uh, King David, feel in Psalm 22 that he felt forsaken? Why have you, did he feel abandoned? You better believe he did. And we feel that and we experience that and Jesus knows that and he gets that and he understands that and, and Jesus is gonna feel that as well when it's coming up. So he says to you, truly, truly, listen to me. I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. You're gonna see some amazing stuff. You're gonna do some amazing stuff and greater works than I do because I am going to the Father. Now he's telling us, kind of where he's going. It's still not a destination. It's a person. I'm going to the Father. This is the way. By the way, remember he told Peter, I'm going and you can't follow now, but you will. If, the, if these per- passages are meant to be connected and I can't see how they wouldn't be, someday Peter's going to the Father. That's a cool comfort. This is why when we go through John 14 and I connect it over to Revelation 21, that we are comforted in that. He's going to go prepare a place for us and come back to get us. And whatever you ask in my name, now listen, I, I do think that the works that we will do, that he gives them a special, a special authority, a special a power as his first 11, getting this spread word. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I am confident this applies very freely and openly to the original 11, maybe to the Apostle Paul or the, or the 12th who's added in. These were clearly being given special authority, which makes sense given the conversation as they spread the gospel. But notice he isn't done explaining where this power to perform these amazing things is gonna come from. Step one of learning to live as a holy human being will be Jesus going away. We're gonna spend some time on that in the next couple of chapters. Is Jesus going away? He isn't done explaining where it's going to come from. Where is this power going to come from? There's a whole lot more to this story and a whole lot more that we can live out in this. Even if we don't have the same authority, the same um, automatic approval for the plans that the, the original disciples did after walking and talking and living with Jesus and being filled with his spirit gave them, I don't know. There's debate in that within Christianity. What I am confident of is that we typically live outside the fullness of what he has for us the fullness of living out the way and the truth and the life that he has for us. So one, here's what's amazing all through this passage. So often we come away again, we come away with this like, oh, behavioral modification. I just need to, I just need to tough out and be nicer and gooder and whatever else. And Jesus is saying, no, the purpose in this is to comfort you. You're, it's gonna work out okay. It's gonna be okay. I'm here. I'm going to the Father. I'm going to provide help. Don't give up. Stick with it. Rest in me and who he is, and he is in the Father. You want to see the Father? Get to know the Son. Okay, let's pray. Father, what fun it is to dive into your word and the power of the truth. God, I would pray that every one of us, no matter our age and generation, no matter anything else, that we would submit to the leadership of you, our God and Father. That we would live in obedience to the Son through the sprinkling of his blood. That we would be transformed by the work of the Spirit, submitting to his sanctifying work. God, I pray you would remind us day after day what an awesome thing it is to live in a covenant with you and how weak and pathetic and pale and powerless is a covenant only with ourselves. 
Help us to live out what it means to be your sons and daughters, your servants and your ambassadors. Got to live that out because we can, because we're free, because we've been bought with a price, because we get the, you have given us the power to submit to you. And, and there's no greater expression of freedom than to submit um, to you and your way. Thank you for sending your son in his name. Amen.